I I think I think that Jesus would have honestly broken Instagram if he had an account. What do you mean by that? <laughs> I well, he was hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors. That would be like if Jesus had a feed nowadays, he there'd be like pictures of him hanging out with like drug dealers and prostitutes. What would what would you do if you opened up the feed and saw Jesus <laughs> hanging out with drug dealers and prostitutes? You know, I've never considered that question before. <laughs> Hey everyone, you're listening to the Righteousness mini-series on the Good Lion Podcast. We're so glad that you're here. This is episode four, and the title of this episode is Sinners Made Righteous. This is going to be a great episode. We're going to contrast how a lot of times our self-righteousness keeps us from realizing that we are sinners, but once we realize it, we're able to fully experience the goodness of God and the way that he interacts and works in and through sinners to make them righteous. Today on the show, we've got some discussions between me and Brian Higgins, and then we have even more conversations with our friends Nathaniel Bedson, Zach Shellabarger, Wavy Cowper, Brian Stupar, and Char Broderson. It's a great episode, lots of great discussion. Stick around, you're going to love it. Brian, one of the things that I'm always amazed at is Jesus's ability to, one, be friends with sinners and at the same time call them to repentance. That is a paradigm that to me in our modern society, it's so hard to see what that even looks like because I feel like the mantra of our society right now is basically acceptance and affirmation. And so if you want to be friends with somebody, you need to constantly affirm them. Um, I don't know if you've experienced this, but so many times for me, when I was a youth pastor, I'd be on really good terms with a kid. We'd be hanging out, eating burritos, spending time together, cracking jokes. But then the minute that I would bring up an issue of sin in their life and try to like in love say, hey, you need to step away from this. I'd get blocked on social media. They'd stop talking (laughs) to me. They'd stop coming to church. I mean, what do you think, man? Like, how is yeah. how, how do we even do that? I've had that same experience. The only difference is you were in California and I was in New Jersey. So just replace burritos with pizza. And it's <laughs> exactly the same conversation. Hmm. Part of me understands why we kind of think that way. Like, do you like it when people tell you you're in sin? No. Like if, <laughs> if I turned this podcast into Aaron, I have four things against you like that. That really wouldn't awkward. be that would be really weird and it wouldn't be a fun conversation. Um I get why the response is to run from our sin. It is literally the response we learned from Adam and Eve. Hmm. They ran into the knowledge of good and evil and they were thought, forget this, I'm out. Like I'm gonna make sure no one sees this or knows about this. Right. <laughs> so I understand all of that. Um I think the thing we need to come back to is we're not just calling out a preference we don't like. We're calling out a brokenness you need to fix. So mm. if you ever broke your arm and went to the ER and your arm is like really messed up, like it's moving in weird directions, if you show it to the doctor and the doctor says, that is broken, <laughs> you wouldn't sit there and be like, how dare you? Like you need to <laughs> affirm my arm in its current structure. Like we wouldn't do that because we recognize there is a way that things should be. Yes. There is a way in which this needs to be set up. Like there is a right and there is a wrong. Well, and, and to bring it into the conversation of righteousness, it's, 
you understand the relationship the doctor has with you is he's mm-hmm. the one who is supposed to tell you those things. Yes. Hmm. Yes. And and what we kind of lose at times is that in the church, we're not just there to remind each other we're saved already. Hmm. We're there to push each other into an even more right relationship with Jesus. Hmm. We're That's... here to look at each other and say, look, after all that he's done for you, why would you not respond rightly in this area of your life? Why would you not respond rightly in the way you talk to other people, in what you watch online, in how you love other people, how you serve other people? Like We should be pointing each other towards living righteously in response to the relationship Jesus has now given us. Hmm. Not so. That's so good. There's an old G.K. Chesterton quote where he says, what is wrong with the world is that we do not agree on what is right. Hmm. And one of the problems that we can run into in a church setting in particular, but also that we run into, especially with the divide between the church and the culture, is the culture has told us the right thing to do is to affirm people no matter what they are or what they do or how they think or how they act, because affirmation and self-identification are the two greatest goods Hmm. that we can have. The problem is we come to Christianity or not. That's not the problem. (laughs) The, the divide that we run into is that we come to Christianity and we see that the greatest goods are identifying yourself by who God says you are and pushing other people to live in line with that. Hmm. And as long as we have those two differing ideas of good, it's going to be really hard to engage the conversation of sin and sanctification really well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I I think that we don't, I feel like we don't have a paradigm in our mind of like what it actually looks like to do what Jesus did. Because going back to everything we were just saying, I feel like, you know, going back to that doctor analogy Jesus was able to speak repentance into people's life and still be friends with them because he set up the relationship that way with them. Like he mm-hmm. came to these people, became friends with them, but also established a system in their life where he, they knew how loved they were by him, that they were able to receive the words that he said. I remember um, reading a book. It was uh, when I first started in youth ministry as a junior high pastor. There's a book called The Young People's Pastor that was written in like, Britain in the 1800s by like one of the mm. first youth pastors of all time. So it's like really weird because it's like a guy who's probably like in his 50s, but he's a youth pastor and he's writing in, you know, old English. Um, but one thing that he said stuck with me. And it was so good. He said, for every time that you want to deposit into a child criticism, make sure that you have first invested a hundred affirmations. And it was this idea of if a young person views your role in their life as just the person who tells them that they're wrong all the time, like that's the person who shows up and tells me that I'm failing, then really all you are is you're just another authority figure in their life. You're just, you know, a teacher or a coach or somebody who just shows up and says, do it right. But if you have told that person, if you've recognized in them the things that are good about them, the things that are positive and the things that you love about them, if there's a friendship established with them, then in those moments where you have to say those hard things, it's going to be received way better. And I, I think that's true. There, there are kids that used to be in my youth group where I am able to say those things to them 
But then there's other kids where I didn't invest that relationship time and it's much harder. And even one of the things I used to joke about in youth ministry is that the kids that I feel like I had the greatest effect on were the kids that watched me sin and I had to <laughs> apologize to. Yeah. Because I had to show them, look, this is in me as well. Mm. I am not a finished product. I am not the one who has arrived and I will tell you how to arrive. I'm on the same journey you are. I've just been doing it slightly longer when I was yeah. a youth pastor. Um, right. And even now, think about the way that the church mostly relates to the culture. It's mostly angry think pieces online. Yeah. They normally hear from Christians the things we don't like about the culture. Yes. And when we set up that antagonistic relationship, it makes sense why they don't want to hear us. It's because right. we haven't affirmed anything. We've just said this is, and we shouldn't stop. I should be careful in how I phrase this. We shouldn't stop calling wrong things wrong. Right. But we should it's also. Because it's exactly. poison and it hurts people. It's still dangerous. But we should start pointing out the right desire, even if it led to the wrong conclusion. Yeah. Or the right hope that the culture has, even if we're then concluding with, but Jesus is the greater fulfillment of that hope. Well, that's the big problem right now of the way that the culture views the church. In their mind, our relationship to them is we are the guardians of what's right, and we're the, the ones who point out sin, and we're the ones who are constantly judging. Like it's that SNL character, the stuck-up church lady, you know? And, and, and that's the way that the world sees us. Yeah. And in reality, the Bible says that our relationship, like, you know, if you go back to Israel and then you take it into, you know, the church, the relationship that we were called to was to be a kingdom of priests, in a kingdom of priests, what a priest does is they connect God and man. They bridge the gap. They stand in the middle and they say, hey, man, let me tell you what is so great about God. And that's really not what we're doing. When the culture thinks of Christians, they don't necessarily think, oh, those are the people that show me how great God is and they make me interested in God and they make me want to follow God. Instead, they just feel, I mean, at least when I talk to people on the street and ask them, what do you think about Christians? The first thing that comes up is, oh, well, they're, they're judgmental. And one of the things I think we need to kind of own is they don't fully have that perception by accident. Yeah. There, there's been places where the church has that perception because we've earned it. Mm. And there have been times where Christians have been just judgmental, angry voices pointing out things they don't like. And, and it's always going to be the burden of Christians that want to go beyond that. Mm to to bear the weight of that. It's it's kind of like there have been enough famous examples of <laughs> notable pastors falling. Yeah. Um there have been enough notable examples of clergymen working with children mm. doing terrible things. Like yeah. we obviously we don't condone those things. We hate those things. We wish they never happened, but we can't just say, "Well, that's not me, therefore I don't have to answer those questions." Like, I can look at my own heart and say, well, I don't think I'm the judgmental Christian, so why do I have to bear the weight of that? Well, it's because people who did things in the name of Jesus kind of messed up that perception, and, and it's going to be on us to kind of own the fact that that is where the view of the church is today, and it is our responsibility to help people see beyond that. Yeah. No, it's... I think it's so key for us to own that stuff. I've made it a rule for myself. I, I do quite often 
Um, I go out on the streets and I just talk to random people about the Lord. And um, that's sort of a, a ministry that he's given me a passion for. And in those conversations, especially with young people, especially with millennials and people even younger than that, um, those conversations do come up and those you know accusations against the church come up. I've just made it a rule to never be an apologist for the church, but to be an apologist for Jesus. Mm. So when people bring up that stuff, I'm the first to say, Hey, yeah, you're right. There is a lot of junk out there. And I'm so sorry. That's that, that, that I'm so sorry. That's happened. Mm -hmm. I'm so sorry that your experience at your church was a bad one, but let me tell you about Jesus. And, and, and I think when we do that and we're willing to admit that there have been mistakes and we're not just putting ourselves up on this pedestal where it's, you know, Christianity is the perfect group and nobody out, everyone out there is wrong. All the other people are flawed, but we're the, uh, the shining golden star out there. I, I think instead to be honest with our flaws, but then to always point to Christ and say, Hey, this is the one I'm trying to follow. And don't look at me because I'm going to make mistakes, but this is who we're after. Next on the show, we're going to hear from my friend, Nathaniel Bedson. He's the director of the Calvary Bible Institute in Ireland, as well as one of the assistant pastors at Calvary Waterford. He's got a great story and some great perspectives. Here's Nate. Hey guys, uh, yeah, Nate, Nate Bedson here, one of the associate pastors at Calvary Waterford. Um, yeah, I love the discussion so far. Um, really, really good stuff. But yeah, Aaron, as, as I was reading about, you know, why is self-righteousness such a danger to Christians and, and pastors in general? Um, yeah, I was thinking about just kind of how self-righteousness has fleshed itself out in, in my life personally. And I think it's it's done so in, in kind of two ways. So, so I'll share two ways that it's fleshed itself out, and then I'll, sh I'll give an example. Um, yeah, so the first way it's fleshed itself out is that it's caused my heart to to act in, in a way that is is prideful or arrogant um, towards those who I deem on the outside. So it's 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 caused my heart to to say I'm in and they're out, um, rather than remember um, and and view them those those who I, I deem outside um, as as just as needy and just as potentially acceptable of the grace of God that brings myself into right relationship with the Father. Um, so that's kind of the first way that it, that it fleshes out. The second way would be, is it causes, I mean, for me, it causes a lack of love um, and a lack of true, I think, covenant community in the body of Christ in the sense that I, I have to be, it puts this pressure on me to be the perfect uh, person for everybody um so that i it, it's it's impossible for me to humble myself when i make mistakes um and and then when i do make mistakes it causes just this incredible sense of guilt and shame and um you know it, it I, I blame myself for kind of the breaking of that that the inter interpersonal relationship with the other person um and and at the same time it, it causes me to look down my nose at at those who had who had deem as you know kind of off off the mark um so it, i think it causes a lot of um i guess it steals a lot of the joy and the gratitude and the thankfulness that that's ours or and available to us in in this invitation into relationship with the father
So I grew up, you know, in a Christian home. I, I did all the things. <laughs> I said my prayers, I read my Bible, I received Jesus. When I was young, I was I was sexually abused and, and raped by an, an older kid who was part of, who you grew up in a Muslim family. And that really um, shaped the way that I would identify my in my relationship with the, with the father. I would identify my relationship with God in the sense that um, all my actions after that said, okay, you allowed this horrible thing to happen to me. So I kind of have a get out of jail free card and you owe me, <laughs> like you you owe me, you have to repay me. Um, and then the other thing it did is, is it, and I didn't realize this till years later, is it actually caused a deep seated hatred for um, for, for Muslims or even people who, who look like Muslims. So much so that, that I would totally and completely avoid interactions with anybody who even who even looked like um, or could potentially be a Muslim. Um, and it wasn't until until years and years later that God really um, he broke me, man. He just he just broke my heart. Um, and it was it was through Ephesians chapter two where Paul says, "For by grace you've been saved through, through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God." not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so I was thinking about that and, and reading through that, and the Lord, you know, he just really spoke to my heart. He said, look, um, this is th this right relationship you have with me being brought in, my invitation into fellowship with me, that's a, that's a gift, that's a gift of grace that I've given you. Um, and you know what? That other, that, that man who did that to you, did that horrible act to you, I, I, I want to, my desire is that he would receive that same gift of grace. And if Nate, if you, if you've received that gift, then he can too. And that just, that just shattered my heart. And uh, he broke me um, in, in, in a really good way, in a really good way. And revealed to me that I had just, I, my heart was still a heart of stone. going back to that bringing bringing it back to the whole issue being receiving a heart of flesh through the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ and um, and that sorts out so much of you know this pressure that I, I feel like sometimes I, ha I feel like I put on myself in in pastoring others in the sense that you know I, I feel like my, my sermons have to be perfect or my preaches have to be perfect my interactions with others have to be perfect my, uh, my counsel has to be perfect I have to be perfect otherwise people are gonna are gonna fall away or they're gonna you know the relationship with God's gonna be broken or something like that when I when I just when I remember who I am because of the work of Jesus and, and that I've been brought into fellowship with with the Father um, and that I have access to him and that, that grace that he wants to extend all people, um, man, that takes the pressure off so much. Um, you know, it, it takes the pressure off, and I can say, look, I don't have to be perfect. It's not that's not my job. My job is to point to the one who is perfect, um, to to the one who is perfect. And that one is Jesus Christ. I just really want to respond to what Pastor Nate said. That's the voice of Zach Shellbarger, an old friend from my youth minister days and currently one of the associate pastors at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. First of all, I just want to affirm and encourage you and, and thank you uh, for sharing that. That is 
a beautiful representation um, of how God can can bring us out of so much. Um, I just want to affirm, Pastor Nate, just you sharing your story and your vulnerability. And I thank you so much for sharing that. And I think that 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 sense of what you said is like, hey, God owes me something. Like I'm I'm owed this. That that really stuck with me. And I know that that's something that I struggle with so often when I'm looking at my past, when I'm looking at things that have happened to me as a kid or have, or, or, or maybe perhaps things that I've done in adulthood that I feel like, Hey, you know, God, you, you really do owe me because not only have I gone through this, but look at what a good person I turned out to be as a result of that. And like I said before, it's not always this explicit thing that happens. Uh, it's, it's something that is so subtle in my mind that I start to feel like I'm entitled to something. I start to feel like I'm, I'm owed God's favor. And the second I think that not only I'm, I'm owed God's favor, but I'm also owed the favor of others. Uh, that's when I start acting like the king of my own life. And I don't put Jesus on that throne. And uh, that's something that I definitely ideal, you know, uh, identify with. And that's something that I, de- I definitely uh, struggle with daily. It, not only in the struggles that I've gone through, but also in the triumphs that I've also experienced in adulthood of, hey, you know, I've done pretty well for myself. And so, yeah, why why wouldn't God bless me? Why wouldn't God like me? Of course, you know, I turned out okay, right? And that, that subtle uh, self-worship is always permeating my life. And I see that as such a pattern in people's lives as they continue in their Christian walk. That's something that, I notice a lot of seasoned Christians when they walk through life and if they haven't really poured out um, as much as they've been poured into, if they haven't been actively being humbled by the work and the ministry of Jesus and they start to identify themselves and define themselves based off of how good they turned out or all the bad things that they don't do, they start to develop this toxic self-worship. And that's something that I have to watch out for in my own heart. It's something that I have to identify in the hearts of those that are coming to me. And self-righteousness is definitely that I've earned this, or at the very least, I'm better than the person next to me. And so why wouldn't you count me as righteous? Why wouldn't you bless me? Of course, I'm this good. Not being humbled by the cross, not being humbled by and coming face to face with our own sinfulness. Yeah, it's really good, Zach. I think oftentimes the pastoral life can require so much sacrifice, long hours, sacrifices, things laid aside, dreams that had to die in order for God's dream to live. And for me, it's very easy to look at my own life and my own sacrifices, the things that I've left behind, the things that I said no to in order to obey God's calling on my life and the effort and time put into loving and shepherding people. And and then when things aren't going my way, you know, financially, relationally. I mean, just recently I've had family members die from sicknesses and one from a car accident. So it's very easy in those moments to have this kind of self-righteousness form where I say, you know, God, I've done all the right things. I've, I've dedicated my life to you. I followed you. So then why are these negative things still happening in my life? And you see, in my life, self-righteousness, I've realized comes not specifically from feeling like I'm someone who's perfect. I know that I'm a sinner. It has much more to do with me saying, Jesus, I'm trying my best to walk with you and obey you and serve you. So why aren't you taking care of all of my problems? 
I would understand you letting someone who's apathetic, someone who doesn't care go through these challenges, but why me? I care, I put in the effort. Why do you still let me suffer? And I know that's wrong, obviously, but if I'm really honest, that's where my self-righteousness manifests most of the time. Yeah, Aaron, and along those same lines, I would say that also goes for the sacrifice that you pour out to people. I know that there are so many things that I have laid down. There's so many things that I have sacrificed and said no to in order to pour into other people. And I think this can happen in marriage. This can happen in a friendship. This can happen in a parental and child relationship, which is if you find yourself being the giver so many times, you start to resent those that you're giving to. If you feel like there's no reciprocation and that comes from a a heart that has not truly understood the amount of grace that was poured out to us by Jesus, that he gave all of himself, that he gave 100% and he poured out his entire life and laid down his life for us, that we might live with him, that we might live a life and life more abundantly. And I think uh, when my heart is not saturated in the gospel of Jesus, when my heart is not soaking in the sacrifice of Jesus and ruminating on what he's done for me, uh, I can start to feel entitled to the gratefulness of other people, the gratefulness of my wife, the gratefulness of uh, the congregation that I serve. And I will start to feel like I am entitled to some sort of worship or reverence from these people. Don't they know what I've done? Don't they know how much I've given to them? Don't they know how much I've sacrificed? And those negative thoughts can be so toxic to my heart. It really does take a radical slap in the face by Jesus when he said, don't you realize what I've done for you? Don't you realize how much has been poured out to you and is continually poured out to you? Not only did I die for you, but I have given you my spirit. I walk with you. I'm an advocate for you. I interpret scripture for you. I draw your heart closer to mine. And I'm unfolding heaven before your very eyes daily. Can't you see what I'm doing for you? And and once I'm, I'm focused in on Jesus, and that's the importance of letting the word affect our hearts, and letting the word really uh, act as that mirror instead of the propensity for us as teachers to look at the word and strictly look at the word as something to give to other people and not to really ingest for ourselves and not to have uh, and holding it up to our own lives. Um, If I'm not having the word kind of affect me personally and I only see it as this object uh, which I can correct others and give others and encourage others with, um, then I start to feel so entitled and so self-righteous. And that is not good for me. It's not good for anyone around. And and Jesus will seek that out. It says that he really does, um, you know, give grace to the humble, but he actively uh, goes against the proud. And that's something that um, it's not a, necessarily a warning or a threat, but it's it's, some, it's just a reality of how God works is that he is going to go against the proud for the sake of reproof, for the sake of drawing us closer to himself and making sure that uh, we don't destroy ourselves or others. Yeah, man, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I think for me, the disconnect happens when 
I think of all the spiritual activity and deeds in my life and I see them as originating in me, as if I'm the source of the goodness because of what I'm doing. But in reality, it's not me that's serving. It's not me that's blessing people. It's not me that's ministering. It's actually Jesus doing those things. He's the one where all the good things in my life come from. Anything good people see in me is only because of Jesus. He's the one doing the work. He's the worker. I'm just the tool. And if I'm honest, if I'm really honest, there's times where this self-righteousness appears the most in my life. It's the times where I'm pouring out and serving and not just sitting at the feet of Jesus and getting filled back up so I can pour out. My tendency, the way that I'm wired is... I'm a doer, and so this happens way more than I'd like. But when I connect with Jesus and spend time with him, when I actually just sit at his feet and receive from him, I realize it's not about my sacrifice, it's about his. All the things in my life I look at as sacrifice, all the things I'm giving, that's the wrong way of viewing it. My, my participation in these things is actually a great gift from Jesus to me. It brings me so much joy to serve him. It's not some horrible job I'm forced to do to make a buck. It's it's a great gift that I'm allowed to even participate in the work of God. And I get that backwards so many times. I think in ministry, you know, every interaction we have with people, it does take something out of us. It's draining. When we feel like we're constantly losing a part of ourselves by pouring ourselves out, the emptiness that comes after the pour, it can leave us seeking validation from others as kind of the fuel to keep ourselves going. And, and since, you know, starting this podcast network, there's been a part of me that just craves some sort of validation to know that there's actually people out there where this is making a difference in their lives and helping them and that I'm not just some guy with a hobby in my home office. And occasionally God allows me to hear from somebody who sends an email or direct message on Instagram saying, hey, thank you so much, this really helped me. But then on there's days where we post our, our podcasts on our website and feed and only five people look at them. That's hard. It's really hard because it just feels like, oh, what are we even doing this for? But, you know, in this season, Jesus has been teaching me so much that it's truly all about him. And even if one or two people are blessed by what we do, it's totally worth it. It's worth all the hard work in the world. And that's something I know is true, but it's so sneaking hard for me to believe sometimes. Absolutely. And I know that that specific type of self-righteousness, that entitlement to people's praise or people's gratefulness for all the sacrifices that you've made for them, it, uh, it actually, I know in my own personal experience, I feel like it gives me license to sin more when I feel like I have poured out more than I have received in return. I feel like sometimes when I'm in a bad mood or when temptation comes my way, that there's this license that I have almost this free pass to sin more because I feel like I've earned it. You know, it's like, I feel like I've earned that break. I've earned that liberty because of how good I've been doing. And that to me is one of the biggest pitfalls of self-righteousness is that when you are consumed with focusing solely on all of this good that you've been doing and how good you are and how righteous you are and how much better you're doing than other people, you lose that self-examination. You lose that habit of looking inward at your wickedness, looking inward at these things that will make you stumble and knowing that in no way are you allowed to sin in this way against your God, against your family, against those that you love, your community, etc. 
And so I know that when self-righteousness is consuming my heart, I am way more predisposed to sin. I'm way more easily stumbled into temptation because I, I really do. I feel like it's that treat that I can have after being a good boy, <laughs> right? And it's that little dog treat that I get after I've done a trick, you know? And that's something that Jesus is continually working in me, especially as someone who is, you know, does make a living as a pastor, just pouring and pouring and pouring and pouring out. Um, you know, sometimes it's like, hey, I'm going to treat myself, right? I'm going to, I'm going to allow myself to have a bad day, right? And that's a, that's totally of the enemy. And it requires me to sit under the righteousness of Jesus. Oh man, Zach, so good. You're, you're totally touching on this extremely subtle shift that the enemy uses in our minds. And I, I don't really know how you view our mission with Christ. I almost view it as a battle where Jesus is king and we're fighting alongside him. It's probably because I watched a lot of Lord of the Rings growing up, but obviously we know that our weapons aren't swords or arrows or bazookas and our enemy is not flesh and blood. The Bible says it's the dark forces. It's it's the enemy, the true enemy, uh, the devil. And the war is for souls, the souls of people. The way that I kind of see it is, you know, I absolutely think myself and my pastor friends and everyone I know who is actively serving in some sort of ministry, I, I view them as the fighters. You know, we're the ones out on the front line fighting for truth and justice and trying to free people from darkness. And so our lives are kind of a part of this great battle. But I tend to view others who are Christians by name, but, you know, they're apathetic, they're uncaring, they're unactive, they don't serve others, they don't preach the gospel. I tend to look at those people and I see their sin as worse than mine. And kind of here's what I mean, like on a Monday afternoon, let's say that I sin in some way. And then on Tuesday, I hear that someone who is not actively trying to follow Jesus and they just show up to church and say they're a Christian, but they're not really following if I, if I hear that they sinned in the same way that I did the day before, I'm going to actually judge that person more harshly, which is so dumb, but it's just where my brain goes. I, I'm going to think, man, I can't believe that person did that, but I just sinned the same way the day before. It's, it's crazy to me that that's how my brain works. It's the self-righteousness in my mind tells me that because I am actively trying to serve Jesus, my sin doesn't smell as bad as someone who is not serving Jesus. It's like this idea of, well, you know, I was out fighting the enemy. I was out fighting the good fight. And my sin was the result of me getting hit by a fiery dart from the enemy. And you're just at home on your couch. What's your excuse? That's where my brain goes sometimes. And it's easier for me to look at my sin and think, oh, it's not a big deal since I'm serving. But in reality, I need to realize that whether I'm serving Jesus or not, sin is death. It's poison. And I need to take it seriously. Like sin is not just this list of bad things that we're not supposed to do. It's not like God is like saying, you know, here's my preferences. Try not to break these rules. So often I forget when I sin, I'm actually fighting for the other side in the battle. Like when I'm sinning, I'm choosing to do a complete flip. And in those moments, I'm leaving the service of King Jesus and I'm actively serving Satan, which sounds super harsh, but it's like, it's the reality when I give in to pride, when I lie, when I don't treat my wife the way she deserves, in moments of anger or lust or selfishness, I'm actively fighting for the forces of darkness. I become a traitor like Judas, and I become an active participant in the rebellion against God. 
And sometimes these moments are just, you know, they're brief. It's like having a moment where I turn to the dark side and then remember who I am and what I'm supposed to be fighting for. And so I turn back, but it still doesn't negate how serious it is. I, I often forget how serious Jesus sees sin. Like going back to the whole discussion on righteousness and what we've been talking about, it's not like Jesus is saying, hey, those are my rules. You broke my rules. That really ticks me off. It's, it's not about the rules. It's about the reality that when I sin, I am participating in the dark, destructive force that has been tearing God's humans away from him since pages one through three of the Bible. And I don't want to face the reality that my sin is actually satanic. It's literally me choosing to follow the way of Satan in those moments instead of the way of Jesus. And when we sin, we're engaging with the evil that is ancient and hell-bent on destroying humanity. And I don't know about you, but it's so easy for me to forget to look at things this way. It's, it's, it's oftentimes so hard for me to remember to take sin as seriously as it needs to be. And I think a fantastic thing that you bring up, Aaron, is that a lot of what's where self-righteousness comes from is this overestimation of the good that we do and an underestimation of the evil that we commit. That's something that it, it does require this shift in the way we view sin obviously that and and i love the metaphor that you use which is like i'm actively warring against the other side it is not that i just slipped up and i stumbled and i got to get right back to it i have now benefited the kingdom of darkness and that sounds so lord of the rings ish but it is so true and it and it is absolutely 100% backed by scripture that 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 is what we're doing right there that there is warfare going on and there is this leaning into the other side and so i i love the perspective that you you put us into there because so often i will underestimate the impact that my sin has not only on my own heart but also on the hearts of others i will absolutely not give it its due with the type of impact that it does and think that my good is so good, like my good deeds and my obedience and the awesome good Christian things that I do uh, somehow like compensate for whatever evil I commit. And so that that is a gross overestimation of how righteous I am and a terrible underestimation of how wicked I am. And it definitely affects the way I treat others. And that, that is self-righteousness right there. It is this overestimation of your righteousness, your sufficiency, uh, your definition of good, the God that you have made yourself out to be, and then an underestimation of the impact that your attitude, that your countenance, that your words, and that your actions can actually have on people, have on your loved ones, and have on the heart of God, more importantly. Thanks so much, Zach. Love your perspective, man. Thanks for being a part of the conversation. Joining the conversation now is Wavy Cowper, the pastor of Calvary Limerick. I think your point there of being a pastor and thinking, I did so much good and poured out so much of myself for so many people and sacrificed this thing and that thing this past week that I deserve my little treat is such a trap we can get into. It's, it's even very close to like, indulgences that were being sold in Martin Luther's time by the Catholic Church that we think we've paid in good deeds and now we can purchase some fun 
meaning like bad deeds or an angry moment, an indulgence in what it, like whatever it is that day. And we can totally have had the right heart in everything that we've done that past few days. And then just kind of negate it by coming a few days later and saying, oh, I did this for God the past couple of days. So now I should have this for myself. Such a destructive pattern we can slip into. As even I think that idea that Nate was saying about feeling like you're owed something from God. It's like positive reinforcement. We do with kids as well. Like do your homework, get some candy, eat your greens to enjoy ice creams. And we carry that into our relationship with God. Oh, I did good today, God. So I should get my like equivalent of sin ice cream. And Dave Shaw in Calvary Cork, his band is called Beyond the River. They wrote a really great song like around this idea. And it's called Humble Me. It's on their SoundCloud. And the verses are about all the things that you've done for God this week. You know, listening to the sermon and actually doing what was said, reading scripture giving more than you thought was even necessary in the the tithes and offerings and then the chorus says the more I think I'm doing well the more I feel I'm safe from hell and I congratulate myself and then from there ask God for mercy to humble me for thinking those things and thinking like that and having that kind of attitude about the, the good that we're doing in our lives the things that we're doing with God as as if we're we can congratulate ourselves for it or as if we deserve something because of it. Good word, Wavy. Now here's some thoughts from Pastor Brian Stupar. The longer I've gone through life, I've had to do self-examination, listen to people's stories, watch cycles of people come in and go out of the church, in some cases, even in and out of the faith. Um, Somewhere at the root of that is entitlement. And it's been one of those things I've just come to realize it's this cancer that's very destructive. And the root of it really is obviously self-centeredness, selfishness, but it's this idea that I deserve something. Um, I deserve to be given something by God. I've done X, Y, Z. You know, I think Aaron, you had mentioned the whole paradigm even within Christian circles. Uh, I've, you know, was a junior high pastor and faithfully did that for three years and I'm expecting God to give me my wife now and it hasn't happened yet so I'm mad or I, I'm expecting you to go on staff full time and I've only been part time or been given like a $300 stipend so I'm mad. Um, it's it's a cancer that destroys people, destroys their joy. Um, I think a practice to undo entitlement and I think I'll, I'll even add um, it plays into this self-righteousness cycle in people's lives um, because it reduces everything down to a if-then type of relationship. If I do X, Y, Z, then God will give me whatever. Um, Again, everybody has their own unique ways by which they fill in the blank. And within that paradigm, no relationship could ever flourish. I mean, if you were to take that same approach, even with a marriage, if then type of an approach, then um, it's cancer to that marriage. So entitlement, big deal. Yeah, Brian, that's a great point. I think the way that I've seen this play out in my own life is, you know, I've had mentors who are self-righteous, you know, people I look up to who are self-righteous. And what that did to me 
was it created in me this fear. You know, I can never be like them. I can never live up to their standard because I try and then I just fall short. I think, you know, I can never be like that guy. He's perfect. And the inevitability would be that the person that I looked up to, I would discover that they're actually not perfect. The, the hard reality for us in ministry is we all have these heroes of the faith that we look up to, but in reality, all of our heroes are going to fail us at some point because they're human. Every person we look to besides Jesus will fail us at some point, whether it's small, you know, they drop the ball, they break a promise, they hurt our feelings, or something, you know, massive and horrific, which happens too often in churches, sadly. All that being said, when I had mentors in my life, who were actually honest about their mistakes and shortcomings, who were willing to say, you know, I'm not the gold standard. I'm just a person on the journey of following Jesus. And I'm inviting you to come with me. And we're both probably going to stumble on this path, but let's do this together. When I was exposed to that kind of humility, it helped me not to fall into self-righteousness, but to be free from it. And as pastors, the more honest we can be about our own humanity, and the more we take ourselves off the pedestal, I think the healthier our churches are going to be. Hey, Char Broderson, you're here with us. I think you had something to add. Why don't you close us out? Just listening to the conversation that's going on um, brings to mind something that I've been uh, talking to our church about recently. I think when we really look at the overall biblical narrative of creation and then fall, if you look at Genesis 3, um, as Christians, you know, we tend to ask like that classic question, why do good things happen or why do bad things happen to good people? And rather looking at Genesis 3, the question should be and is, wow, why does God show grace and mercy to this rebellious, sinful world at all? And you know, if we really look at Genesis 3, we should be rejoicing that every act of God is a breaking in of his grace of heaven back into earth, of redemption into our stories, you know. And so that kind of puts that self-righteous narrative in check is, you know, whenever we're living the self-righteous narrative, we're actually assuming that this world is okay and right and good the way that it is, rather than remembering that it is actually under the curse and broken and waiting to be redeemed by God. And so I think that that's a subtle way that we can kind of reframe the narrative for our people. I, I, think, I think that Jesus would have honestly broken Instagram if he had an account. What do you mean by that? I, well, he was hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors. That would be like if Jesus had a feed nowadays, he'd, there'd be like pictures of him hanging out with like drug dealers and prostitutes. What would what would you do if you opened up the feed and saw Jesus <laughs> hanging out with drug dealers and prostitutes? You know, I've never considered that question before. Yeah. Um, no, I'm just I just no, think it, that it's a good question. <laughs> um, that that's the what? thing that I I like to think that I would have been back in Jesus's day, the guy that totally saw the heart behind it and got on board. Um, but part of why part of why the church is judgmental is because it's safer. Yeah. It's easier to yeah. know who's in and who's out. And there's a real part of me that likes knowing who's in and who's out and likes knowing yeah. if I stay within these boundaries, then 
I'm one of the good ones. You know, it, it's right. easy to want that. It's hard to uh, that. I don't know if his account would blow up Instagram or if it would just be hated by everyone. He'd have way more than 12 followers for sure. <laughs> That's definitely true. Or at least 12. Would he block Judas? Um, maybe. I don't <laughs> towards know. The maybe end? for like a, a week. Yeah. yeah, towards the end. Okay. But no, I, I mean, just but if, if I saw you on Instagram and like your next post was like you hanging out with drug dealers and prostitutes, I'd be like, yeah, maybe maybe I need to give Brian a call. <laughs> you know, is he okay? we would have we would have a different conversation than we're having right now. I totally agree. That's, with just, that. that's what I'm talking about. This paradigm where Jesus was able to be friends with these kind of people and they loved him like they weren't like, oh, gosh, here comes that Jesus guy yeah. trying to spend time with us again. He was known as their friend. So to me, that's the equivalent of, you know, nowadays the way that we're known is through social media. That's how any of us know what's going on, you know, especially if you've moved away. How do you know what's going on with the people back home? How do you know what their life is? Social media. So Jesus was known as somebody who was friends of tax collectors and prostitutes. And he showed up at their gatherings and they weren't annoyed at him. They weren't like, oh, here comes religious Jesus. Somehow he was able to be friends, but then call them to repentance. And I just, I haven't really ever seen that done well, if I'm honest. I, I've, I've constantly been in a Christian bubble where it's Christians hanging out with Christians. And even in that, Christians tend to often judge each other harshly when sin comes into the picture. Uh, and a lot of people get turned off and leave the church because of bad experiences. How on earth did Jesus do this? Brian, please tell me. <laughs> please explain. I wish that I could. I, the thing that I would point out is think about what the spiritual bubble in that day was saying about Jesus. They were so mad at him, they were ready to kill him just to silence what he was saying. Hmm. I think that if if Jesus had an Instagram account today there'd be a lot of famous preachers bashing it and yeah. saying how wrong different parts of it are. And, um, you know, the, there's kind of some reverse engineering involved. Like, we're loyal to Jesus, so whenever we see Jesus do a thing, we say, that thing is great. But yeah. then if we saw somebody else do that thing, it's very easy to say, whoa, that thing is not so great. Like, Yeah, if I saw you flipping over tables in, like, a temple or a church and whipping people, I'd be like, uh... Like, that was a little much, man. Right. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And part of it is knowing our place versus Jesus's place. But right. also context. Part of it is Jesus was so clear about what his heart intention was. Hmm. And I think when it comes to befriending and not just befriending, but having meaningful relationships with people who are outside of the church, so much of it is that our only intention is to have them come to church one day. And that's a good goal, and, and we should have that goal. But Jesus seemed like, it's almost, it's not the right way to phrase it, but it's almost like he didn't care what happened next. He just cared that he loved them right then. Mm -hmm. Like, he just cared that they had that one good encounter because that was enough to change so many people and yeah. make them completely rethink the direction of their life. Oh, it, yeah. He just wanted to love them. Right. He didn't want them to do a certain thing. Yes. Yeah. And, and he cared about their sin, but not so much in the sense of, oh, they're doing the wrong things. I need to get them to do the right things. He understood the sin as poison and corruption to them, but he was friends with them because he wanted to basically 
bring them into right relationship. It's it's totally what we're talking about with the story of the woman caught in adultery in this mm-hmm. episode. He's finding a sinner, bringing them, exposing them into what right relationship with him looks like. And then he knows that once that relationship's in place, once the exposure to his goodness is in place, then the right behavior is what follows. And I, the way like I would see it just in my imagination as I'm trying to imagine these situations, I imagine him spending a lot of time with Matthew, the tax collector, just being friends with him. And, you know, if Matthew's talking about extorting the poor, Jesus probably isn't laughing at those jokes, but he's friends with this guy. And I see, I, I would imagine it as, you know, him sitting down with Matthew at some point after he's invested in that relationship and saying, you know, Matthew, you know that stealing tax money from your fellow Jews, it's not going to satisfy you. No matter, no matter how rich you get, follow me instead. Or, you know, sitting down with Mary, you know, a prostitute and saying, hey, you're so beautiful and loved and cherished by God. You don't need to sell your body to men. Trust my father to provide for you financially and not these other things. Follow me, Mary. And, and, and from somebody who's your friend, someone who you know loves you, you're going to receive that kind of message so differently, I feel like, than just someone saying, hey, you're a dirty tax collector, prostitute, get out of here, stop sinning, you know? Yeah, it goes so much farther from someone who you think just cares about you. You know, like I think about there are people that I know in church who care about the church side of me. You know, Mm -hmm. they cared about the leadership I was providing, the things that we were doing. And I'll be honest, there are people that I looked at as, you know, they are servants in this ministry. And so I care about these different parts of them. But I wouldn't always push as much as I should into just real personal relationship with them. Hmm. I'm just like, hey, how's your life outside of this? How's the rest of you? Right. Like, it's easy to get caught up looking at one element of people's lives, whereas Jesus really cared for the whole person. Yeah. And when we care for the whole people, our main goal is not do the things I do. It's start taking steps towards wholeness. Yeah, dude, I love that. That seems like a great place to end. Hey, thank you so much for listening to episode four of the Righteousness miniseries on the Good Lion podcast. Episode five is coming out next, and it is titled The Self-Righteous Pastor. You're going to hear from several pastors in the Calvary Network all about what it's like when we as pastors deal with self-righteousness, when we get self-righteous, when we let our own righteousness go to our own heads. It's going to be a great discussion. I'm excited for you guys to hear it. Thanks for listening. And if you're enjoying this podcast and series, please go on iTunes, give us a rating, follow us, go to the Good Lion podcast and drop us a review. Let us know how we're doing. We would really appreciate it. Good Lion is a production of Hesed Creative and the Calvary Global Network. We're a nonprofit podcasting ministry run by a team of volunteers that seeks to bring quality Jesus-focused content to the body of Christ. For more awesome podcast content, as well as articles, educational resources, and more, check out our website, goodlion.io. If you want to support our work, please visit goodlion.io slash support. Thanks a lot, everybody. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Aaron Salvato. This is the Good Lion Podcast.